Some of you might remember the old English hymn, Onward Christian Soldiers. Roma's waving her hand. With a catchy tune written by Arthur Sullivan of Gilbert and Sullivan fame, the hymn invites the congregation to follow Jesus Christ into battle as one body, not against flesh and blood, though. Not against human beings, but against the powers opposed to creation's well-being. The third stanza goes like this, and you can sing along if you know it. Like a mighty army moves the church of God, Brothers, we are treading where the saints have trod. We are not divided, all one body we, one in hope and doctrine, one in charity. Onward, Christian soldiers, marching as to war. With the cross of Jesus going on before. That was pretty good. That was pretty nice. Now, in most mainline Protestant, most mainline Protestant churches, most polite churches, like this hymn has kind of fallen out of favor, along with the old verse three for all the saints. For all your soldiers, faithful, true, and bold, fight as the saints who nobly fought of old. One reason is the exclusive language, brothers, in the Onward Christian Soldiers verse there. The other is that any hymn with martial language is immediately suspect in our wing of the church and for good reason. After all, Christians are to be committed to the way of Jesus, right? Jesus, after all, didn't raise arms against anyone. He didn't raise an army. And all too often, the church has blessed the state's use of violence. Crusades in both world wars are only a few examples. However, perhaps we've overcorrected. There's a story from a pastor named Austin Crenshaw Shelley about a discussion she had with a classmate in seminary who was a Coptic Christian from Egypt. Now, the, Cop the Coptic Christians are a minority in Egypt. It's, it's uh, vastly, it's a, a small minority in a, in a country that's mostly Muslim. Expressing her disdain for military references, she said, I tend to prefer the image of beating swords into plowshares and the vision of the wolf lying down with the lamb to those of waging war. Her classmate, whose home had been the target of a terrorist bombing and who had experienced, actually, on the other side of it, other Muslims uh, surrounding the church, his church on Christmas Eve, to protect it from attacks from extremists, gently responded. You prefer verses about peace because you have never needed a warrior God. This student needed a God who would fight for him, who would protect his family and his church. He needed a God who would wage war against the principalities and the powers that hold this world in bondage. 
Not a nice, sweet God who refuses to be a problem for anyone, but a God who would vanquish evil once and for all. Some of the time, as for us, we might think we prefer the sweet God who refuses to be a problem and lets us live our lives as we want to, but that's not who God is. And in times of deep crisis, pain, or loss, when we've lost all hope, when we feel under attack, when we're dealing with sickness, when we're dealing with the destruction of relationships, we have a need for a warrior God in Christ to fight for us, too. But for all the militaristic language in Revelation and in these hymns, Christ fights evil in a different, surprising way. Chapter 19 of Revelation, we have an image, a vision, of Christ as a triumphant rider on a white horse, prepared to tread the winepress of God's wrath, wielding a sword from his mouth. Christ may appear to be a violent conqueror with such language, but there's more to the vision. The real clue as to how Christ conquers is in what he is wearing. Did you notice? He's wearing a robe described as being dipped in blood. But this is before any grape-stomping or sword-swinging has happened. The blood of the robe is his own, shed for the life of the world. Christ refuses to swing a literal sword, not because he is so meek and mild, but because it is simply impossible to vanquish evil through committing more evil. It is impossible to put an end to violence through more violence. We've only had 10,000 years of human civilization to prove that. Rather, Jesus conquers the forces of death and hell by absorbing that violence in himself. He doesn't vanquish evil with a literal sword, but with the sword from his mouth, which is a metaphorical way of speaking of Jesus as the word of God the word above all powers. Jesus is the living word of God who died, who rose, and who reigns with his Father and the Spirit. He is the word of God who is enthroned as King of kings and Lord of lords under a mocking sign that spoke more truth than his murderers could have guessed. He is the word of God who refused to perform a magic trick for the crowds when they taunted him, come down from the cross. He is the word of God who brought a repentant criminal into paradise. And he is the word of God who will lead us into the holy city of God, where we are promised wholeness and restoration on a level we can scarcely imagine, where we will reign with him forever. That's how the warrior Christ conquers. Not through the cheap and easy way of violence, the way of leaders throughout history, but through his sharp-edged, cleaving love. And this love still remains a problem for us. It's a problem because as people destined to reign with Christ, we cannot and will not remain as we are. Every Sunday when we gather here, we're not simply gathering to see our friends or to listen to good music, as good as the music is. 
We're gathering to receive Christ here, the living Christ, in word and in sacrament, the Christ who will not leave us to our violent ways, who will not abandon us to our own devices, but is, who is making us fit for his heavenly kingdom. He will not be put on the sidelines. He will not be relegated to the role of a kindly, invisible man in the sky. As far as the old Adam and Eve in us is concerned, Christ is a mortal enemy. But as far as the new creation in us is concerned, Christ is Savior and Redeemer, Lord and King. And more than that, Christ is a King who shares his rule with us. That is our destiny as citizens of his kingdom. As Luther writes in his explanation to the second article of the Creed, he has done all this in order that I may belong to him, live under him in his kingdom, and serve him in eternal blessedness, righteous innocence. I got those backwards. Let me try again. In eternal righteousness, innocence, and blessedness, just as he is risen from the dead and lives and rules eternally. And you can say it with me here. This is most certainly true. Thanks be to God. Amen.